Hey folks, this is Always Be Watching. We do this every week. We talk about the TV shows that we've been watching. Chris Yates, you do this podcast with me. Oh, my name's Dan Barrett. Did I tell people that? Unprofessional. I don't think you did. Chris Yates, you're the guy, the other voice in this podcast, correct? True. Yes, confirm. You're going to talk about some shows. What's the first thing you're talking about? I want to talk about the Muppets now, Dan. Look, we all do, but we're going to get to that. See, that's a bit of a pun, a bit of a joke, a bit of a wordplay. Like, who's on first? I, we're I going to talk it. about that. I'm going to talk about the new Seth Rogen movie called An American Pickle. Uh, we're going to talk about a Netflix sit uh, sitcom, sketch comedy show that people have already seen about a year and a half ago, but we only just got around to it. We're idiots. Um, it is called I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. Yeah, which is just good advice. It is. I think I should leave this podcast right now. Yeah, and then we're just going to wrap up this here little podcast. And I'm sure people have been hanging on to know what my thoughts were on Perry Mason, a show that I had some very mixed <laughs> opinions on after the first episode. But anyway, I'm just going to dovetail back and we're going to wrap that up. I'm going to put a bow on it all, Chris. What I want to see is a graph of your um, enjoyment and dissatisfaction and satisfaction with Perry Mason over the course of the season. I hope there'll be a PowerPoint presentation or something similar. Look, there will obviously be a PowerPoint presentation, but I think that you'll find the graph will look very similar to my thoughts on the streaming service Quibi. <laughs> look, again, that's, yeah, it's a wild ride. Oh, look, it's there's ups, there's lows, downs, <laughs> highs. <laughs> Chris, let's get into the Muppets. <laughs> Hey, hey, Gonzo, uh, I'm just about to upload I hope it's here. not my survival show where I live in the woods for 30 days using only my wits and a salad fork. Uh, no. Oh, good, because I haven't shot it yet. <laughs> uh, I gotta go. Wait, Gonzo, aren't you taking your camera with you? That would be cheating. Hmm, of course it would. Now, Chris, I don't know what your thoughts are on the show yet, but I have to say, of the, I've only seen the first episode. There are two episodes of it out, and it's a Disney Plus show. I've only seen the first one, and that little bit of audio play then, I thought was by far the funniest thing in the episode. <laughs> yes, and I still had my head in my hands in despair <laughs> while listening back to that uh, unforgettable moment. So we're on the same page. This isn't good, right? This is not good. This is terrible. I'm a big, you know me, I, I love stupid, childish crap. I love the Muppets. I've grown up with the Muppets. Your entire life is stupid, childish crap. Everything, it's a big part of my life. Um, I actually had children of my own just so that I could continue to enjoy the childish crap that I do with, you know, having it in a more socially responsible way. Good choice, because uh, I'm feeling self-conscious about it lately. <laughs> yes, it can be awkward. But um, uh, no, look, I mean, we've seen some really uh, terrible things happen to the Muppets in the last... Uh, in, in, in the last sort of decade while they've been trying to reboot them in various formats. And it just never fails to surprise me how badly they do at this. Of course, the first Muppets movie that came out, which was called Muppets, I think, wasn't it? Um, you know, the, reboot the with first, the... first Muppets movie, but like no, in no. recent years. The, yeah, the, the first rebooted one with um, uh, Jason which, Segal. Which had the Jason Segal and had the music. The, the music was excellent, um, provided by one half of... Fly the Concords, um, Brett, Brit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had completely forgotten about the faux workplace style doco kind of one that came out a few years ago until I started watching this and was like, oh, that's right. They're not, they're not good at this anymore. Yeah. That sort of faux office uh, version of the show. And was that just called the Muppets as well? 
Oh my God, I can't remember. Maybe it's called like the Muppets Bracket US. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, 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 I <laughs> That's a joke about The Office. I get it. Well, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, like they're, they're so good at taking a format, which is pretty hard to mess it up and just destroying it, it these days. And I just, it, I, I can't even put my finger on. I mean, obviously it's not funny, this show. This, the jokes are terrible. Um, is it actually improvised? Like the whole thing is that it's meant to be like an improv thing. Um, if that's the case, I would suggest probably once again advocating for writers uh, to be involved in the process at some stage because there's clearly something missing. Now, I think the original intention was for it to be improvised, but then I think they may have reversed course on that. But I'm not sure because this is a show where initially it was advertised as actually maybe the improvisation remains because that makes some more sense than it still sort of says that in the yeah it says it in the you know guff about it yeah because originally it was supposed to be just like a series of shorts so every sketch that we're seeing was really going to be i guess standalone or maybe they'd be like just two shorts like squeezed up against each other but then when it's actually launched it's now like a proper 22 22 minute like sketch comedy show and when you look in, like, at the, the actual sort of thing of it, it's all sketches and there's no framework. It's not like the old Muppet show where Kermit would be the stage manager of, like, a stage production and he'd be running between scenes and there'd be some sort of storyline running through the background. It's literally just sketch after sketch after sketch. Yeah, and these are not intelligent sketches. Like, these are, this is the kind of stuff where it's, like, if, if uh, a sketch is just doing something that exists in the real world but using Muppets in its place and expecting it to be funny from that perspective. Uh, yeah, it's it's not good. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are a bit disheartened at the moment about the change of voice of one Kermit the Frog. And I have to it's say, a, like, it's a hard one. that sort of thing doesn't bother me hugely. Like, I kind of feel that if their voice sort of embodies the spirit of it. But I was watching it and it doesn't quite embody the spirit of Kermit either. Like, there's definitely something wrong. There's definitely something wrong. And he's had a few voice changes over the years and we have got away with it in, on some occasions. And, oh, well, I mean, it's really just know, gone from Jim Henson to Steve Whitmire and now, now it's the new guy. Oh, right. So it's been the same guy the whole time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, like, I'm not a now. Muppetologist by any means, but I believe that. <laughs> so if you're no, already we'll... halfway through writing your letter, please drop pen. It's all okay. I think like... Yeah, it's just another case of wasted opportunities. Like the the framework for the the workplace comedy doco style, you know, it, it should have been a no brainer to be able to turn that into laughs and to be able to you know use the traits of those characters, which are already a very ensemble cast of, you know, odd odd jobs and and wackos um, that all kind of would be able to be slotted into those various roles that you would expect in that kind of ensemble workplace kind of comedy but just didn't work at all you know you're giving up some stuff here like the the intro skit i think it was the first skit anyway with um miss piggy doing you know beauty advice on an instagram oh, style yeah like come on you know it, it's, <laughs> i feel like i feel like we're just when it's not like there's a high a high bar i'm trying to measure this against and i'm like you know criticizing this uh, puppet show for not meeting the lofty ideals of like television greatness or anything like that. But this is seriously some like l- l- bottom of the barrel kind of stuff. And this is what you're opening the show with. So, whew. Yeah, it was pretty rough going. There was one good joke in that opening sketch and it was Miss Piggy misreading the name of her program, which had the word lifestyle on it, but she read it as lifestyle. And like, that's kind yeah, of funny yeah. because she's a pig and you know, whatever. But I know. What seems to be missing from it, though, is you'd watch... There's a specific sense of humour that comes with the Muppets. 
And that's things like, if you've got a scene with Gonzo, you randomly just have chickens around. Okay? Just yes. Little <laughs> things like that. Just like the oddity of the Muppets. But it just kind of feels like they thought, well, like every sketch seems to be approached from the idea of, here's a Muppet sketch, but they don't actually think that they need to layer in with anything. It's just, it's just the Muppets doing stuff. And the yeah. Muppets never really ever did stuff. They did stuff in a very specific way that was very unique to each and individual character. And so Gonzo has Muppets. Uh, Miss Piggy, like, she doesn't really host a lifestyle show in as much as she thinks she hosts a lifestyle show, but it's really something else. And, like, there's never just pigs around. That pig's in space. Like, it's always yeah. <laughs> weird anachronistic ideas that are jammed together. It's never really just something that's just... Uh, a to B to C concept, which is what every sketch here seems to be. And I just feel like there's so much wasted opportunity with characters. Like, you know, you've got Sam the Eagle, who is just this excellent kind of conservative, um, hard-boiled American that would be just such, you know, there's such great opportunities to sort of parody uh, similarities in the, um, you know, figuring out where Sam would fit in the current uh, American sort of ecosystem would be should be very funny and should be very good um yeah you've got you know like you've got gonzo exactly who's this kind of fantastic uh kind of clueless super dave style stunt character that could be really you know <laughs> there could be something funny there um fuzzy bag you know it could be he's he's a comedian comedians are the biggest biggest stars on the earth at the moment well, said, why like, are we not seeing listening to you talk just then i realized there is like an inherent sort of problem with the muppets in 2020 which is that all these archetypes made perfect sense back in like 1976 so the idea of a super <laughs> dave character makes perfect sense within the pop culture you had your evil knievels around and I can't remember when Super Dave first kicked off. I want to say it's the early 80s. But even so, like, yeah. Super Dave feeds into the exact same beast that gave Gonzo, like, his uh, Daredevil totally. personality. Uh, Fuzzy Bear, like, he was very much like a throwback to the idea of, like, Catskills comedians. And admittedly, like, there aren't really comedians around, like, Fuzzy Bear anymore. Like, even the ones that were just, like, hanging on have, like, well and truly died 15, 20 years ago <laughs> at this point. But surely there's humour in Fozzy trying to navigate the world of, um, you know, Dave Chappelle and um, Hannah Gadsby in a way that's, uh, you know, funnier than well, the, the terrible things that they had him do. I was saying that you don't have a framework around this show, and obviously they've retrofitted it to be a longer form show than what was originally intended. But surely what you do is, if you don't necessarily want to have, uh, like, a storyline around your sketches... Instead, maybe have some recurring sketches. So if we want to think about Fozzie Bear, for example, like if you're going to have a stand-up comedian who doesn't really quite fit in, why isn't there like every episode a two or three minute sketch with Fozzie Bear's podcast that he hosts? And so guests <laughs> come on and they don't really quite understand what Fozzie Bear's doing and you got that awkwardness that way. Like that kind of works. I guess that makes sense for 2020. Like you could do yeah. things like that and actually have recurring bits. But like from, I mean, I've seen literally one episode, but it did not look like there were any recurring bits coming through. And suddenly any bits that were going to recur, I do not want to see them recur. No, exactly. And I just couldn't even put myself through a, se I couldn't put myself through a second episode either. And it's with such disappointment and, you know, <laughs> it, it, and I really, I really wanted to be like, every time I kind of hope like, oh, they're going to get it back on track and they're going to make the most of these um, characters and this IP in a way that isn't just a total waste of time. And yes, that has, that has not happened. I wasn't enjoying it. And I thought for a moment, like, is it me that's changed? Like, obviously I've gotten older <laughs> and the Muppets aren't necessarily yes. geared towards me anymore. And I fully appreciate that as like a reality of the situation. 
but also I can watch old episodes of the Muppets that I've never seen before. And like admittedly, that's like a lot of episodes. I've seen like a fair bit of the Muppets through my life, but I can't say I'm a Muppets yeah. completist by any means. But like I can watch like old random episodes of the Muppets and see some sketches and go, no, that's actually really funny. That's strange and offbeat. And, you know, I, I understand what it is I love about Muppets. But watching this, like I got through a whole bunch of sketches and there wasn't like a single moment where I was like, that's just a really unique sort of very on-brand Muppets idea. No, and the other strange thing is, you know, it 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 has always been sort of pitched as like the grown-up version. You know, it's it's always been sort of pitched for being for grown-ups. This Muppet stuff, you know, mm. like it's it's um, meant to cap, cap, capitalize on those sort of nostalgic feelings that you have, and the you know the the warmth and familiarity we have with all the characters. Um, but I can compare it to you know you can make a direct comparison to Sesame Street, which of course you know people who don't have children then as a as a father uh, <laughs> as a parent you know yeah play this is that a stupid card. thing to say but yeah yeah but play that card only to illustrate that you know i've actually had to sit through a lot of sesame street new sesame street over the last sort of 15 uh, 15 years over the last five years six years and um the you know the main thing is of course at first it's inc- it's incredibly confronting how different it is to your you know warm and fuzzy memories of Sesame Street of old. Like I grew up watching 70s Sesame Street in the 80s in Australia when, um, you know, the height of psychedelia. and That's the thing with Sesame Street, though, which is that they produce so few episodes every year that every generation of kids growing up in Sesame Street really are watching the Sesame Streets of, like, the 10 years prior. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what we were doing in the 80s. And, I mean, you know, the way that it's informed my interest in art and music and films is, like you know immense and um and when i look back on that stuff but you can't show that stuff to kids now like every parent when they have um kids they want it they're like oh i'm gonna download the you know 1979 sesame street and you're gonna you know you wait and you see how much better it was back then kids and it's just you know it doesn't relate to the way children can sort of brains work and consume stuff in in our modern society but but sesame street that stuff's still a lot of fun to watch as adults. Like, again, it's stuff that I haven't really necessarily seen before, but just the aesthetic of it, there's something sort of very joyous about it. Totally. And it was, you know, they had a lot of um, small sort of animators. Like, so many of the seg- segments were done by little individual animation houses and little um, weirdo artists and, you know, hippies that were making crazy um, s- animation out of sticks and stuff. So it had this really excellent... Um, you know, as well as being psychedelic and handmade, it's got a very uh, auteur kind of feel to a lot of that stuff. And the compilation sort of aspect of it, of course, is how I think informed everything, right? Like right up to sort of when MTV started and and how that was kind of put together. It was all based on those kind of same ideas. But, you know, and I know they've got the educational um, sort of side of it as well. And they've got, so they're always trying to hit certain benchmarks and, you know, introduce new interesting characters that actually relate to, children especially children who are in a position where they might not be getting much education from anywhere else but they um do but but you know they've they've managed to keep it so kind of culturally contextual and up and and up to the minute and it's 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 still a very very good program and it's still kind of enjoyable even the newest hbo incarnation which was the most kind of confronting one to watch straight up because it was a massive change to the structure of the show and to the and to the sort of loudness and brightness and the way that they um they they sort of pan out the episodes was a massive shift but even having gone through that and watching it um you know despite being shocked by it i can see the way it it works for kids and i can see the way that they've done the things they've done have been based on a lot of you know market research and all these horrible things but it actually works in a really great way i just feel like with this muppet stuff they're just like oh we've got the muppets 
we've got all these characters we, we can just chuck them in anything and it's going to work and it just i don't know how many times they have to do that and fail before they realize it doesn't yeah i'm uh, just thinking about like that hbo thing i so essentially when hbo came along it wasn't so much that i think hbo came to the table and said we need these things from it because what you just described as being like the HBOification of it Essentially, that seems completely counter to the, what HBO generally do. Like, usually HBO is a pretty classy endeavor. But what I think actually happened was they came to Children's Television Workshop, or Sesame Workshop, it's called these days. Yeah, not yeah. sure. Anyway, they came to them and said, hey, look, you know, here's a dump truck of money. Just do what you need to do with the program. And so I think that all the changes that you saw in it were things that they would have been planning to do for a while. Sure. But then they could just suddenly yeah, and- do them all and execute it all at once. And so that's why I think it had that sort of, like, jarring sort of a nature to it. But thinking about that connection between Sesame Street to uh, the Muppets, which obviously reaches back to Jim Henson and whatever, but just in terms of the two different approaches to creating a modern-day Sesame Street program versus what we're seeing here as modern Muppets now, it just kind of feels like Sesame Street still gets considered, like, handled, just crafted with a sense yeah. of care and just concern as to what the show will look and feel like for the desired audience as well as what it'll look and feel like for that audience, you know, two or three years from now. Like, it just seems like there's so much care and consideration put into the brand. I don't feel that at all with this Muppets program. No, and it, it just is, cons- it's consistently been like that the last few years where it's just kind of like, yeah, let's just try and milk this IP for something and try and turn it into something else. And and it just, um, it, it just doesn't seem to, yeah, it doesn't seem to work. And, and there's definitely this reliance on kind of like, copying formats i think really lets it down too whereas you know if we just had a uh, there, there even was wasn't there a there was a like a late night muppets um yeah they, yeah. they so, kind of tried to redo the muppet show basically no they did so the muppet show the idea of that was that it was a variety show but on a stage like a vaudeville kind of a production happening presumably in london i'm not even sure exactly where the <laughs> muppets were supposed to be happening i guess it was new york like it was weird it was obviously yeah, shot I think in the uk deep. though um, yeah. So you had that, but then they tried to revive the idea of it and contemporized it for, I want to say it's like 98. Yeah, that sounds about it. right. And so it became a late night talk show, kind of like a Letterman, Leno style thing. That's right. And yes. they introduced Clifford, the host of the late night show. So it was like this sort of cool Rastafarian late night host with dreads. And like, he's a really fun character and they still occasionally see Clifford pop up around the place. But yeah, it's... It's weird, but that show, like, it actually really held quite nicely to the spirit of the Muppets. And there was a lot of throwback sketches, like, there was a Manat Manat sketch and, you know, a few other things like that. Yeah, yeah, right. By and large, the spirit of the Muppets was firmly intact, but then, after that, like, they just seem to have lost the thread. Yeah, so anyway, I wouldn't, um, if you were thinking about uh, getting onto Disney Plus just for the Muppets, which is obviously what they're hoping some people will do, I would probably recommend against that at this point. Yeah, it's such a struggle. Hey, Chris, you know something that wasn't a struggle? (laughs) Uh, It's the new Seth Rogen comedy called An American Pickle. All these yours? Yeah, I mean, I don't own it or anything like that. I do live here by myself. I work from home, though, a lot. It would be nice, honestly, to have someone else around, so you can stay here as long as you want, man. I do not want to be burdened to you. It's not a burden, Herschel, at all. I mean, I'm a major life. (laughs) I... Really, never thought I would get a chance to meet another green palm. So, neither did I. You must be thirsty. I mean, you were brined for like a century, 
and there's salt and brine, right? So you must be pretty parched, to say the least. Uh, can I give you something to drink? Macadamia milk, or there's cashew milk. I got pea milk. They're milking peas now. They're milking everything these days, dude. You name it, they're milking it. I got mint tea. I have uh, kombucha. Kombucha, yeah. It's fermented stuff, honestly. I don't even know. Tastes nasty, but it's very healthy. Would you like some? He's fine. They inject drink into my arm in hospital. I'm fine. Fair enough. Okay, so Chris, I don't know how much you know about the concept of this movie. Uh, I know enough to already be interested in it, yes. <laughs> okay, so the idea of this movie is it's Seth Rogen, and I think most people are on board with Seth Rogen, but I imagine there's some haters out there. It's gonna be, he's like so specific that surely there's haters <laughs> yeah, for know. Seth Rogen. It's about a guy played by Seth Rogen. He is an immigrant to America. He This like around the 1920s. He's dirt poor. He heads to America to have a better life with his wife. Uh, they've got some dreams, so her dream is that she'll be able to die and have a headstone to herself. Like, this is the sort of big dream that she has. The big dream he has is he wants to try seltzer water. <laughs> so, you know, th they're clearly, you know, th they've come to America with the idea that, hey, look, we may actually be able to achieve these things in our life, because they've come from a comically dirt-poor, terrible, like, Eastern European nation. Anyway, they land in New York, they you know, set up their lives. He's working in a pickle factory and through science, which I'm sure absolutely holds together, he ends up falling into a large vat of pickles that gets sealed up very quickly through just an accident. They don't realize it's fallen in, but through circumstance, he's landed in this pickle thing. And then suddenly a hundred years later, some teenagers wander into this abandoned factory, find like this man has been brined in pickle juice and through obvious science, he's still alive and well and is the exact same age as his modern-day ancestor, also played by Seth Rogen. So you've got an old-timey Eastern European Seth Rogen, you've got modern-day Seth Rogen, and hilarity is sure to ensue. But here's the thing, Chris. Hilarity doesn't really ensue. There's certainly jokes in it, but the idea of this movie isn't to be a joke fest. It really is trying to get some deeper ideas. So the thematic core of this is this idea of... Uh, people, and like this rings true for a lot of people in Australia, but also it's the US to an extent. But think about Australia, like so many of us come from immigrants. Like we're all people who our previous generations have made great sacrifices for us to be able to live the lives that we live. Are we necessarily living up to the standards that they set? <laughs> like <laughs> they sacrifice so much. Uh, like, are we appreciative? And I would suggest the answer for most people is not at all. And we barely think about this kind of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we're a pretty good example of that as we sit here spending our um, day making a podcast for um, discussing television. We just talked about the Muppets for like 21 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I noticed that um, what it reminds me of straight away is that it, one of the things in the first, I'm going to say it was the first season of Master of None, the Aziz Ansari show. He yeah. has his parents on there, his real life parents. I think and that episode's called Parents. Yeah, right. And they, you know exactly what I'm talking about there. Yeah. They, they have a really great conversation about this. And, you know, you sort of see a lot of the struggles that the parents went through so that um, Aziz can live this life where he just kind of wanders around and gets frustrated about girls and um, is kind of, you know, thinks he's, he's <laughs> suffering great hardships with his life, but clearly isn't. And I mean, that's one of the great things I loved about that show was it did a lot of, you know, what, what they try, what a lot of comedians try to do with these shows and they're sort of soul searching and inward looking stuff, but he really... 
he really did that well. But I still think, like having said that, it was far far from the be all and end all, and it was very specific to his particular family and his upbringing. So um, it's interesting to think about it in the ways of yeah, other other immigrants as well, of course. Yeah, like the Aziz Ansari thing kind of struck like. I actually felt a greater connection to that than maybe you would. Like, I don't quite know really what your background is, but like my parents, well, my grandparents moved to Australia, like just two generations prior. So I've seen sort of firsthand like that generational, like needs come to a country of, you know, um, greater um, possibilities. And like, look, I mean, obviously the life that my grandparents went through wasn't quite as grim as the comedically just awful <laughs> nature of the Seth Rogen and his wife's character. But they definitely came from poverty, like in Slovenia, to be able to come to Australia. This is my mum's side of the family. So watching them talk about it in Master of None, and like obviously an in Indian culture is slightly different to um, European, but there was still enough crossover for me to be able to get completely on board with what the Is This Ansari character in that show was going through when he's thinking about those sacrifices made and the expectations put on him to make more of his life than he is. And yeah, this, yeah. This film is playing around with that exact same idea, except the sort of real sort of fun convention of it is that you have a man out of time who's living in 2020 Brooklyn and dealing with his son, like, great-great-grandson directly. And, like, that's a really fun conceit. And I think they actually milk it fairly well. There's lots of milks, obviously, on offer, as evidenced yes. by the clip. <laughs> Much like here, they've milked the concept really nicely. And the film itself, it works really well when there's, like, small intimate scenes like the one we just heard in that clip. The bits that don't quite work, and this is more a thing with, like, the final third of the film more than the majority of the movie... But the final sort of parts of the film that don't work is when it starts to try to comment on things beyond that small and intimate nature. They start to deal with the idea that uh, the um, older character, the man out of time, he's made some comments in public which suddenly has him cancelled from culture. And it's kind of just playing around with like the idea of cancel culture that becomes the source of parody. But to me, the stuff that's actually kind of really interesting in this isn't really commentary on modern day life in a broad social sort of an idea. But really, and this comes back to a movie that we talked about in this podcast, like maybe about a month and a half ago. Remember we briefly talked about a Jack the Ripper slasher film called Time After Time? Yeah. So it was totally. a bit of a romance sort of man out of time, like thriller. Mary Steenburgen was in it. But there's this sequence where I think it's the H.G. Wells character. He ends up walking into a modern day McDonald's. And so he's confused by the thing. And there's that idea of the quality of food from... 150, 200 years ago, I'd be 100 years with that instance, uh, but like the quality of food versus like processed food. And to me, that's kind of an interesting idea to play around with. Like you can say a lot about our society and the day-to-day -day things that we do, okay, through just these small little things that seem very anachronistic yeah. to someone from, you know, times gone by where quality is different and there's less of a manufacturing sort of nature to a lot of the stuff that we consume, both in terms of food as well as content and you know, everything else. Yeah, There's totally. stuff to talk about. I think the movie goes too big and it yeah. kind of just loses something. But when it works, it works so like, remarkably well. Seth Rogen, like, this film is a two-hander and both the roles are played by Seth Rogen. Like, there yeah. are other characters that kind of crop up, but they're not really in the movie. Like, there's people with, like, a couple of lines, but it's really Seth Rogen playing against Seth Rogen for the entire thing. And it's fantastic. They feel like two distinct different performances. And I was watching it because I saw Seth Rogen, who I think is acting in a way that I've never seen him actually act before, just in terms of quality. Like, he's phenomenal yeah, yeah. at it. 
Uh, and it's not like it's, uh, you know, an Academy Award winning performance by any means, but there's just like subtlety and nuance in playing this character that I've just not seen from his performances before. And I realized afterwards that because he's bearded, uh, essentially he would have shot all those bits first and then shaved and then played against himself. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, sure. And so obviously there's a bit of time that will have passed. So that's kind of where he's getting those two distinct performances from. But watching it side by side, once the gimmick has been established, like he becomes two different characters. It's really interesting too. I really like the idea of sort of trying to tell a more, um, you know, try and tell a deeper story and try and do some serious acting without uh, having to go the whole hog of Adam Sandler in um, Uncut Gems or whatever. And, 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 you know, still playing to his strength. So obviously he knows that he's a comedic performer and he knows that he's a character actor and people know who he is and people you know, the, like you said, the people that are on board with him are very much on board with him and the ones that aren't will never be. So to be able to kind of stick to that lane, so to speak, but still try and tell a, a story with a bit of substance and make people think in today's society is excellent, I think. Yeah. Great stuff. No, he's really pushed himself and it's good. Like I think this is a quality film. Uh, so this is launched for the HBO Max uh, platform in the US, but I believe it's getting a cinema release here in a couple of weeks' time. So oh, cool. keep your eye out for it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, of course, won't go to the cinema, but I will be um, f- still very keen to check this out at the, at the next available opportunity. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so it's called An American Pickle. Streaming now if you're in the US. Outside of that, just try to work out when it may land in your territory of choice. Uh, but yeah, Chris, let's wind out to one final broad new thing that we're going to discuss, which is not a new thing at all for most people. They watched this when it was released. I'm going to say a year and a half ago, but it may have even been two years at this point, Chris. It might have been, yes. I'm not entirely sure. Do you want to say what the show is? Uh, it is called I Think You Should Leave with uh, Tim Robinson. Now, this is a sketch comedy program, much like The Muppets. Unlike The Muppets, it's actually pretty funny. And the clip that we're about to hear comes from the very first episode, and it's probably the breakout sketch from the series, which is a... Uh, It's not even technically a beauty award show. It's really just an award show. And this is the 112th annual Baby of the Year competition. All right, while the judges make their decision, let's watch our In Memoriam segment. Oh, no. Calm down. They're old ones. They don't stay babies forever, idiot. Fucking stupid asshole. Little Denny Doo Dinkins, 92, respiratory failure. Shirley Kratzworth Shane. 78, car crash. In memoriams don't usually include how they died. Shut up. Little Jeffy Jeremy, 96, throat slashed. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, So that was the sketch. That didn't have Tim Robinson in it, but really it had his co-star from the uh, the Detroiters, Sam Richardson, in the scene. And my God, that sketch... <laughs> Incredible. Incredible stuff. Um I was I was blown away by the very first sketch of this, which was the um I, I chucked it on. It was one of those like moments of oh I'm so sick of seeing this thing pop up. We've got a mutual friend who's been mentioning it quite often. And I and I sort of thought, oh yeah, radio, I'm gonna just put this on while I'm trying to be distracted while I think about what else I'm gonna watch. And the first sketch, which involved some aliens from another planet where they have motorcycles and come to Earth and find that there's also motorcycles on Earth as well as other forms of wheeled transportation that they'd never dreamed of. Um, just, I mean, I was very much on board from that. I, I had a little, uh, one of my patented laughing fits where I almost lost the oxygen to my brain. 
Now, and, I believe um, I believe that's actually the first sketch from episode two. Oh, is it? Yeah, it there you go. Yeah. I, I, so I made it through one before I got to that point. But such such was my delirium with laughter that I, um, uh, yeah, it erased everything before, including that excellent sketch there. But yeah, man, this is funny stuff. I I, I guess an interesting thing to be talk, to talk about, because this is like in our wheelhouse, we like sketch shows and stuff. Why did we both wait two years to watch this? Thing? Okay, so I find it funny that, you, well, I mean, it's not really overtly that funny, but... You you said that, you know, we both like, you know, this sort of style of humor and uh, sketch comedy shows. I actually don't like sketch comedy shows very much. So my problem... That's not true. No, you I'm love like... Saturday Night Live. You watch it every week still. You not... tell me about it. You send me the YouTube videos. I'm no, not I'm sure any kidding. of that's I'm true. Sorry. In fact, I'm just thinking you to court over that. You've besmirched my good name. <laughs> but no, I generally have a problem with sketch comedy shows. Like there's the occasional one that comes along that tickles my fancy. And when sketch comedy shows work for me, like, they really work. I get very much into them. But, like, they're far and few between. And the reason why they don't generally tend to work is I feel that the sketches generally go on too long. There's... I, I think with any sketch comedy show, you're going to come across a whole bunch of dud sketches and then, like, one or two really great ones. And the one or two great ones kind of prop up the rest of the show. Like, not every sketch can be a winner. And I think that's There's certainly the... true in this show. <laughs> like... Some of the sketches I think are just incredible, like the Baby of the Year sketch is the best thing I'm going to see through this decade. However, <laughs> like th there's some hard going to get to that. And you can generally um, sort of find like a sketch has an interesting concept behind it or there's like an interesting gag at play, but sometimes like there are one joke sketch and so there's three or four minutes sort of surrounding it. But where I think sketch comedy shows fall apart is when like Saturday Night Live, because it's a live vaudevillian style program, Sometimes those sketches go up to like 12 minutes and it's like barely enough material for like a one and a half minute sketch. And I feel that any sketch comedy show that knows the limitations of the sketch and really is just like catering it completely towards where the strength of that sketch exists and then just like backing out from it and just letting it be what it needs to be as opposed to what the format of your program necessitates that it becomes. Like the shows that are able to do that are the ones that I generally latch into. The one I've got to mention, um, just because it addresses a few of these things at the risk of talking about another completely unrelated show than the one we're supposed to be talking about. But of course, the, the Mitchell and Webb look. That's the one I want to um, talk about which, too. Yeah, which I mean is just almost the high benchmark for me as far as sketch comedy goes. And funny because, you know, like they wrote it themselves and it was, they did have some, there are some other writers, but the, um, you know, as the stars of Peep Show, um, they received a lot of Sorry, uh, acclaim and stuff. But, the best show in the world the best show that ever was ever created. Um, but obviously they're not the writers on that show. So, you know, there was always this kind of thing like well, those guys could be really funny when they're doing that, but are they really funny? And I mean, that show proved they were the, the, the thing that really made me the, the real standout there is, you know, you're talking about the hit and miss sketches. There's a fantastic sketch where they're um, sitting down and writing, planning when the hit and miss sketches are going to be. So it'll be like, <laughs> Oh, let's do two hits. Then we'll do a miss, then a hit. And then, you know, two misses, but we'll bring it back for a hit at the end. And, um, that kind of stuff, which I think addressed that really well. Obviously, when you're doing this stuff, you, it's hard to know what's going to land and what's what's going to be funny and what's not going to be funny to people and what's going to really resonate. But the other thing about that show too is, you know, it's how, however many years ago they did it. I don't even know. It's probably 15 years ago or something like that, 10 at least. But the, um, you know, we're constantly, yeah, yeah. We're constantly seeing the shows were sort of such a, a a great commentary on modern life and on the kind of the way that the world was was heading that we're still seeing them there's some of the sketches from that show became, becoming very relevant which of course i'm referring to the you know um the remain indoors uh post-apocalyptic 
game show, which um, <laughs> has been, I've seen shared like about 30 times over the last sort of six months, which, you know, nobody, nobody saw that at the time and was like, oh, this is, a, this is going to be an interesting, you know, foretelling in our foreseeable future where we'll be able to relate to this in some way. So, um, you know, like, and they had some other great ones where they, they definitely tackled some stuff that, you know, um, the, the homeopathy emergency room and the, um, the toothbrush, uh, the, the the guys coming up with the new concepts for how they're going to keep selling new toothbrushes and in, introducing the tongue scraper and you know the, these kind of things Which that there, are just there actually so, was that such... product like that product existed and I don't know whether I the know. episode was making fun of the product or if it was maybe like a year <laughs> ahead of the product but there definitely was a tongue scraper yeah yeah absolutely so it's this kind of thing where like you know that show because of its sort of because of how sort of scathing and how cynical and how um, the, the things they wanted to look at, it just continues to to, to remain being relevant, which I think is really, uh, you know, it's, that's really strong. And I think that the, some of the things that work about this show will, will be that same way as well. Like it's not, you know, the problem with Saturday Night Live, obviously, is that you're trying to churn stuff out every week. So you're making references to things that have happened in that in the news that week and you're trying to really, um, you, you're doing that thing where you're comment, commenting on what's happening at the moment for both political means and just also because, you know, you can't think of anything else to really to be funny about. So but, this I mean, show, also you know, for that show, like it's a live sketch comedy show as well, which means that there's like logistics involved, which is that you can yeah, totally. have like just a whole bunch of sketches that go for like 90 seconds. They actually, for the purposes of being able to like get to the next sketch and be able to dress sets and all that kind of thing, like sketches by necessity actually need to go for, you know, five yeah. to 10 to 15 minutes at times. Yeah, so you know, there's, it's it's not a fair comparison to compare it with that, but the sort of you know the idea of things having to be timely and things having to be based on the news that week. I think once you remove that from a show, you, you've actually got a lot more room to play with some sort of bigger ideas and funnier stuff. And I feel like I feel like that's what uh, Tim Robinson's been doing with the show. I mean, I think the thing that put me off the show initially was just that he's he's just so from the from the outset he's he's incredibly unlikable this guy like he's just sort of so like he's hard to watch he's kind of it's kind of offensive and obnoxious and just kind of gross and it um really made me not want to like seeing little tiny snippets of it i was like oh i just don't think i'm gonna get my head around this dude and then um yeah it took that letting my guard down and just sort of being open to it to sort of go oh hang on a minute this is this is really, really funny. Yeah. And he really plays into it as well. Like he knows it is yeah. kind of unpleasant to watch and boy, does he yeah. make that note. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And that's where some, I mean, that's where some of the really big jokes come from is just how, how awful he is. Now, look, I was thinking about this program and because we've gotten to it quite late, like anyone who's interested in watching this has well and truly already watched this. I thought about, well, what is that we can actually bring to this conversation? <laughs> what new thing? And so this is the question I want to throw to I you. I hope you found is, something. <laughs> Well, my question to you is, why do you think that this sketch comedy show, which when it dropped on here, word of mouth on it was rapid fire. Like everyone was talking about the show. It was one of these, you've got to watch this program like immediately. Yeah. Like the opening weekend of this on Netflix, like it was everywhere and everyone was talking about it. And for two or three weeks, like everyone was on at the show. Why do you think the show worked? And do you think that that necessarily has the same resonance now watching it two years later? Yeah, I, I don't know, because like I was saying, it's not sort of based solely on on timely kind of stuff. I think maybe because it's, um, it, you know, for me, that sort of the, the level of absurdism is is almost spot on for what I personally really enjoy, where it's kind of, you know, rooted in reality and um, 
there it's not just parodies of things that happen in the real world but it digs a bit deeper than that you've obviously thought about it though let me what why do you think look i don't have a very grand idea around it i was hoping that you might have something a bit more sort of um, <laughs> crafty than i do no just but what i think it might be and obviously these sketches i think some of them are just gut bastingly like funny and i i do think that tim robinson is a comedic genius uh, I particularly like when he's involved with Sam Richardson, like the two of them, they had the show called Detroiters together, which is one of these underrated gems that like nowhere near enough people have seen that show. Like, yeah, I've think, never watched it, but I remember you talking yeah, about it. Detroit yeah. is incredible. You have to watch that program. Now that you're on board oh, with Tim Robinson, like yeah, backtrack yeah. on it because it is well worth your time. And Sam Richardson, I think is just maybe the funniest person on the planet. Like he's certainly up there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of good comedic talent that's involved in this, from Tim Robinson through to Sam Richardson, who's I think in two or three episodes. Uh, Jessica Bayer pops up in the second episode, and if Sam Richardson didn't exist on the planet, I honestly think Jessica Bayer may be the funniest person on the planet. I think she's just <laughs> incredible. Uh, so she's in a sketch in the first episode where she's sitting with some friends who are taking Instagram photos of themselves and they're writing sort of cutesy, like self-denigrating comments there about themselves. And she just takes things way too far and she gets really offensive and just starts <laughs> dropping some language. But what I think actually works about it beyond the fact that just the sketches work and it's good talent is that it's short. No episode is like longer than 17 minutes. And within that, yeah. there's about like four or five sketches per episode. And I think that really works well for Netflix. I think it's just one of these things where someone will throw in an episode with the idea of, oh, I could afford 17 minutes to watch this. And it's just so, like so fast and rapid fire and it comes to an end that you're actually left wanting more. And I think yeah, that yeah. experience of being left wanting more suddenly makes you just go, I need to watch more of this. And because that's so short, you could watch like all six episodes in like about an hour and a half. Like it may not even take that long. Like, yeah, yeah. You can just get through it really quickly. And I think just the fact that it creates a hunger in you as a viewer, and even though you may be say, like sating, satiating, uh, even though you may be fulfilling that hunger that you have, like you still walk away with that sensation of, you know what, that was great. I just want more of this. And then it becomes a word of mouth sensation after that. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's, so it's probably only about an hour and a half, two hours worth of, altogether, right? And and I don't, I think if you sort of sat down to try and watch a two-hour special of this, it would be fatiguing. And um, you know, it, as if if it was to be packaged packaged up as a comedy special, which sometimes happens, I don't feel like it would have the same. Well, you would remove that from it straight away. Yeah, well, it'd be roughly like ninety minutes all up because they're about fifteen-minute episodes, and there's six of them. Yeah. So you've got that, but I also just think that, like, most sketch comedy shows, like, even, like, that Mitchell and Webb look, like, that was British show, so about 27 minutes, because there's no ads, yeah. uh, and I don't think. Anyway, like, 22 Closer to, to 30, minutes, I reckon, yeah. Getting somewhere about there. But, like, that's a lot to get through. Like, by the time you reach the <laughs> end of it, it's like you're full from your meal and you just want to sit back and unbutton your belt and, you know, you're kind of done with it. Whereas because this is so short and it's just kind of like a quick sort of adrenaline shot each time through with, like, just some great gags... You want more. It's like, give me, give me, give me. Is there more coming? Uh, well, apparently there's a second season like coming in 2020. So I don't know when that is and whether it actually got filmed or not. Like, who really yeah, knows? Yeah. Oh, I'm really hoping so because, uh, yes, I definitely, I definitely want more from this. It's good to know about the Detroiters show. I'd forgotten all about that in him minute. So that'll give me something to go back and catch up on in the meantime. Until, uh, please, until please backtrack on that. There is one or two scenes that I'm just thinking about immediately. Uh, so like the episode where Sam Richardson becomes a male prostitute. Oh my God, my sides are like the pain that I felt when I first watched the show and I managed to calm it down 
like I just feel it swelling again. The bandages, I'm Chris, literally, they're just busting right off me. You can't see because I'm in another room, but I've, I'm literally um, figuring out how I'm going to watch this right now. I'll, I'll, I'll wait till after the show, but I don't want to forget. I believe if you have a stand subscription in Australia, you can watch it there. Oh, really? Uh, if Excellent. you're in the US, uh, Comedy Central, I'm pretty sure it's on their various apps. Excellent. I've been very much enjoying my stand subscription lately. <laughs> been getting a lot of value out of it, I feel. Now, Chris, I just want to wrap our conversation up this week by really just wrapping up a previous conversation we had. Do you remember I was talking about the show Perry Mason? Yes. How could I forget, Dan? Now, ordinarily I'd play a clip here, but we already did that a few weeks ago. We did that eight weeks We've ago. We've heard enough. Because the eighth episode run has finished up. And I'm not sure if you remember what my thoughts were on the show. But generally I thought, hey, look, this is quite good, but it's not Perry Mason. What the show yeah. is, like it could just as easily have been Chinatown, the TV show, or The Long Goodbye, the TV show. Set in 1932, it's uh, Matthew Reese, who you may remember from The Americans, playing a private detective play, uh, called Perry Mason, which is kind of ridiculous because that was never a part of Perry Mason's sort of myth or law, whatever. But essentially, this could just as easily be Chinatown, the TV show. It could just easily be The Long Goodbye, the TV show. It could be any random detective. Because it's really just sort of playing into the uh, expected sort of tropes and just the overall feeling of like the griminess of Los Angeles of the early 30s. But also the Los Angeles of the 1930s, while there's that grimy sort of crime element to it, there's also a sense of optimism and hope and whatnot around it. Like essentially Los Angeles back then and also now to an extent as well kind of represents the best of what America can be. Like the possibility for someone to go from like absolute nothing to extreme wealth and success. Like it's all there in Los Angeles as a town. And the show plays around with ideas of that. So because it's the late, oh, it's the early 30s coming out of like the depression, you've got people who've just been through the absolute worst of it. Uh, it's also coming out of a war, and so there's scenes with the Perry Mason character you see back in World War One, and the terrors, the absolute horrors that he went through there. I reached the end of the very first episode of this and said, you know what, this is outstandingly good TV, but at the same time, like, it's not Perry Mason. If you've tuned in for what you know about Perry Mason, that certainly doesn't exist. And while this is supposedly an origin story, which is going to lead to him becoming a lawyer and become the Perry Mason that we all know to be, it still didn't quite feel right. There was something off about that. Like, I wasn't getting a Perry Mason show when I was watching a show called Perry Mason. That was my bugbear. I've seen all eight episodes now. I've seen him go through the journey from gumshoe to, you know, high-class lawyer in Los Angeles. I have to say, the show, it started out looking fantastic. It got more and more magnificent with every episode. My big problem with it is, it's still not quite a Perry Mason show. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in the same way that Seth Rogen fell into the vat of pickles, and when that happens... Uh, you get the character and he narrates sort of what happened to him when he got discovered that he's, was he telling his uh, great grandson? I can't remember who he was telling, but he's just narrating the situation and you kind of hear him talking over the top, because it's narration, over the top of like all the visuals going on. And he gets to the point where the scientists explain what happened. And while they start talking, you just hear the, I think the character's name is Herschel. Um, Herschel, for one of not remembering his actual name. Uh, it just says that, and the scientists explained it, it all seemed very credible at the time, and they just kind of yada-yada-yarded over the science yeah. of implausibility <laughs> of him being Brian. Episode, I think, five of Perry Mason has Perry, uh, who's only been a private detective. He's never had any inclination that he'll ever become a lawyer, but he has to take over this legal case. And so, essentially, within this 15-minute time period, the idea that he takes over the case gets raised to him, and then they fake his way through a bar exam, and then by the end of the episode, he's a lawyer. 
and so they yarded <laughs> yarded over like a month and a half of his life to take him from being private detective to full class lawyer made no sense at all and also <laughs> it's just really detrimental to a character where Perry Mason's supposed to be like one of the best lawyers around and he's got no legal grounding anymore. He doesn't actually understand the law. And so any future storyline that has Perry Mason representing people is always going to come from a fraudulent perspective because it's like, well, first of all, you shouldn't be representing these people. You're not actually, you haven't really passed the bar. Legally, you may have, but ethically, this is really shonky ground that you're on. <laughs> and he's not really doing his clients a good service by representing them because he can't represent them. No, that's very interesting um, side so, note. So you've got that. And then the other thing with any Perry Mason story is at the very end, he'll have his uh, person he's interrogating on the stand and he'll end up tripping them up or something and they'll just confess to the crime on the stand. That happens in every single episode. And the thing <laughs> is, like, it's 2020. You can't have an HBO drama where every episode ends with him interrogating someone on the stand and they trip themselves up. But he still needs to do that at some point. They... Yeah. There's a scene in the final episode of the season, and sorry for the spoiler, but they have him trip up someone on the stand, and then it gets pulled back that it's actually a bit of a fantasy sequence that's taking place. And they just play away from the idea that he's going to do that, and it's really dissatisfying. So if they played yeah. around with the idea of, oh, you can't really do that, and he's like, no, no, you can do that, and they're like, no, no, you really can't, and then he goes and does it, that's a really satisfying moment. But they don't do that at all. They try to play things a bit too smart and just remove, like, the joys and pleasures that you signed up for when you watched a show called Perry Mason. Anyway, it's a bit frustrating. <laughs> and yet, that said, it's probably going to be the best show I see all year. Like, it is such a gorgeous, fantastic show. I'm so conflicted on this. Yeah, wow. So, um, obviously, you would have had a very different op opinion of it if it was just not called Perry Mason. If it was just called Some Dude P.I. Like, if it was Chinatown, the TV show, and they just told a story that wasn't quite Chinatown, but it's just, you know another like chapter in this private detective's life i'm totally on board for it like and yeah if it was like chris yates private detective like, i'd watch that show and like i've actually been meaning to pitch something to you dan i've, I've been working on something really I'll, uh. I'll try to look surprised when you get started on it but yeah perry mason i think you know there's so much joy to be had and i could not be more excited about season two but at the same time i'm just so apprehensive about some of the yada yadaing of season one that i don't know it did leave a bit of a bad taste in my mouth I just can't quite get past it. I love that period stuff. And I especially love that period of America. So I think I will. Um, I, you know, I am still keen to check it out at some point. Definitely watch it. Because the one thing that really stands out about it is the budget involved in the show. And it's not like they do like amazing things with like, like huge set pieces where there's action. And, you know, although there is a World War One sequence, which is more harrowing than most World War One sequences you've ever seen before on screen. Like, it's really kind of incredible. Uh, but by and large, like just every scene that is set, you see like five, ten, hundreds of extras around in the background, and you never really see that on television. Usually you'll see a couple of people loitering around in like a scene where they've spent a fair bit of money on. But like this, like literally it is a lived-in city with so many people yeah, well. around. There's a scene where they go to a funeral, and it's supposed to be a funeral of significant importance within the city where there's a lot of attention placed on this funeral. It's technically not even a funeral, but this neither handle there. But they're at a cemetery. Anyway, like there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of people there, and you see them. They're actual actors who are there all in period yeah, clothing. Right. And man, it is you just watch it, it's like, what on earth is going on with the show? Like it because they've just spent so much money. It's almost though the producers, they had a meeting with HBO, and HBO were like, Hey, how much money do you need like budget wise? And they just said, Yes. 
<laughs> and then they just got all the money. Oh, that's cool. Oh, well, yeah. I'd like yeah. to see some spectacle. Now, Chris, there was one complaint that I had about the... Well, I had many complaints about it, but there was one specifically <laughs> from episode one. I was like, they don't even use the theme song. The very yeah. end of season one of Perry Mason, because it's a prequel effectively leading into Perry Mason, it ends with a revival of the theme song. And I was very happy to hear so that. You, that's good. I'm glad you were relieved by that. Yeah. And is there going to be another season now where he takes it off as, as where he's the lawyer or are we just seeing the prequel? Here's the thing. This has been hugely successful for HBO. They've definitely greenlit a second season. We will see it as soon as the stupid virus goes away. Excellent. Yeah. Another thing to look forward to. Absolutely. Anyway, Chris, we're going to wind things out. This has been Always Be Watching. My name's Dan. You've been Chris. I've been Chris. Still, still am. Still holds. Yeah. Yep. If people want more, always be watching. There's a newsletter. comes out each and every weekday. Uh, there's six a week. There's only five days. You can do the math on how that works. It doesn't. <laughs> but anyway, it happens. Uh, so that happens. Alwaysbewatching.com. If you like this podcast, tell your friends. Tell your friends' friends. I don't know how you do that. I don't really know my friends' friends. They're just people around. <laughs> anyway, That's on Facebook. Let's get out Share of here. Share with friends of friends. This has been Always Be Watching. And we're going to leave, not with our theme song, but with a little bit of a treat. Yeah, you can tell Excellent. where this is going. Now, Chris, this goes for like about two minutes. And I don't think we can just keep on playing it because I think we get busted for copyright reasons. But if we just keep on talking over it. Maybe it'll work if we talk over it. Fair use. If exactly. we keep saying fair use every 30 seconds. <laughs> that might work. It's that kind of like when you've been involved in a car accident and you just have to get out of the car and say, whiplash, whiplash. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sucks. It's pretty generous. Anyway, it really does keep on going and going. Beautiful stuff. I'm glad you reminded me of it. Yeah, I really should. Uh, still like they're not left. It's coming really awkward ends to the podcast. What are you watching for next week? Tell people to subscribe to a podcast and then you leave them with this at the end. They're not coming back next week. That's not going to happen. No one's coming back. What am I going to watch next week? I'm not too sure. So I've watched a huge amount of the Holes and Catch Fire, but I've already talked about that. So I don't know. I'm going to find something. I'm sure Quibi's got something. <laughs> like, I know you're going to talk about Detroiters. It's a very good theme song. It is very good. Can I just say that, and I didn't mention this as I was talking about the program, but Juliet Rylance, who plays the character Delsa Streets, who's the female lead in Perry Mason, she is incredible. Like, everyone's going to be talking about Rylance very soon. And if people liked her, I can then go back and watch the show The Nick, 